This is Chavruta, Jewish Texts and Their Influence on Our Lives, a podcast by the San Diego Jewish Academy. I'm Ali Viterbi. And I'm Rabbi Phil Grobart. Each month, we bring in a guest to teach us their favorite piece of Jewish text. And today's guest is Dr. Amelia Glazer. Amelia Glazer teaches in the literature department at UC San Diego, where she also directs the Jewish Studies program and the Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies program. Her most recent book is Songs in Dark Times, Yiddish Poetry of Struggle from Scottsboro to Palestine, which is out now, but will come out officially at the end of November with Harvard University Press. So Amelia, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Good to see you. Um, so I want to just start with uh, some questions about uh, Yiddish and um, your thoughts about Yiddish and your work. Um, I, I was thinking, you know, when we got together, we spent some time together, remembering now at the Yiddish Book Center several years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, just wondering, what do you think sort of generally is the value of Yiddish literature for Jewish studies? And I could even expand that. What, what's the value of, of Yiddish for Jewish identity or Jewish religion, Jewish spirituality? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, it, it's both obvious and not obvious. I think that um, Yiddish as the language that, you know, before World War II, it was the language spoken by a majority of Jews in the world, um, Ashkenazi Jews, right? Jews from Europe. Um, but nonetheless, a, a very large number of Jews spoke Yiddish. But it's uh, it's a Jewish language that does not overlap with religious studies. So Yiddish is very central to Jewish studies, but not necessarily to Judaic studies, or at least not in obvious ways to Judaic studies. Certainly there were rabbis that wrote things in Yiddish, you know, that wrote religious things in Yiddish. But um, but Yiddish is a language that tends to be studied by historians and literature scholars uh, who are trying to understand uh, the history of Jewish culture and the history of Jewish literature. And Yiddish literature in some ways, I mean, you, you, you have Yiddish literature dating back a, a thousand years, almost a thousand years to the medieval period, but you really didn't have a, a flourishing of Yiddish literature until the 19th century, first with prose, with writers like Mendeley and Shulamalechem, and then with poetry uh, in the 20th century. And at, at that moment, at that moment when Jews encountered modernity and modernism. Yiddish was this everyday language, and it was a language that was a fusion language and brought together, uh, you know, languages of non-Jews as well as as Hebrew and Aramaic. And it was a language that um, the the poet or the prose writer could um, could use as just a, a really wonderful medium for creating art. Oh, great. Um, so you brought a, um, a Yiddish poem that you're going to share with us. I did. I did. Yeah. Um, I brought a poem by Hay Levick, who is a, a really phenomenal writer. Hay Levick was, uh, was born in what was then the Russian Empire, became a Bundist, a revolutionary, and then later made as he actually was, uh, was exiled to Siberia, um, escaped quite dramatically from Siberia <laughs> and made his way to the United States. Um, lived through uh, a lot of upheaval in the United States as a poet who was a um, a poet very concerned with social justice. He wrote poems uh, in honor of Sacco and Vanzetti. He wrote poet poems about African Americans, and uh, and he was sort of in and out of affiliation with the far left in the United States. Um, and and then he um, he had these sort of difficult personal experiences. First of all, he 
had all sorts of arguments when everyone was having arguments in the 1930s in a very difficult decade of the 1930s. Uh, but he also contracted tuberculosis and he ended up spending time in a sanatorium in Denver, uh, recovering from tuberculosis. And so his poetry, especially from that, that period of the late late 30s and early 40s is very, um, very self-reflective. It's a poetry that looked inward, um, that, uh, you know, in, in some ways was trying to use the experience of secular Yiddish literature to get at some form of spirituality. And so the poem that I wanted to share with you is a poem, uh, is a poem called Mima Mekim. Right, which in Yiddish, right, Mima Mekim is the Yiddish pronunciation for Mima Amakim, uh, which literally means from the depths. It's a poem based on a psalm from the depths, right, out of the depths I call, and uh, sometimes known as De Profundis. Uh, but what, what I think Leivik is doing in this poem is he's actually meditating. He's doing something that, that modernist poets like to do, which is to med meditate on a combination of the meaning of the words and the sound of the words. And the sound of the words, the sound of these words, which are, of course, Hebrew, but um, had made their way into Yiddish, became kind of the end in itself. Uh, so I'll read, I'll read this poem for you in Benjamin and Bar Barbara Harshav's really wonderful translation. Um, and then I'll read it. Um, maybe I'll just read parts of it for you in the, in the Yiddish, since it's a quite a long poem. Mima uh, Mekim, what a word, what a word, from the depths. What do you mean, from the depths? What do you mean to me from the depths? Why are you chasing me? Why are you racing after me? From childhood, from hater school, from white midnights, from the depths. Mima making, I am calling to you from the depths. I am praying to you. I am stretching my hands to you from the depths. I want to be known to you. I want to be near to you. I want to touch you. I want to reach you. I want to raise myself up to you from the depths. Mima making. What sound are you? What do you bring with you from the depths? What do you possess in you from the depths? You're saying it once, say it again, sing it again, and then again, Mima Mekim. Whose cry is this? Who convulses in it? Whose song is it from the depths? You're saying it once, say it again, and then again, out of the depths. Uh, and I'll just read a, a couple of little pieces of that poem to you in Yiddish so that you can get the sound of it in your ear. Um, and uh, yeah, well, I'll read it to you in Yiddish first, and then I'll share with, with, with you which section that is. Mima mekim, vos verklang bistu, vos trogstu mit zech, funder tifenish, vos vermogstu in zech, funder tifenish. Right, so mima mekim, what sound are you? What do you bring with you from the depths? So you have this, this contraction, this squished together word made up of multiple words, funder tifenish, funder tifenish. So it becomes almost a kind of mantra rather than a, a word with meaning. And then I'll also share with you, you know, the very... And um, you have this, uh, say it once, right? You're saying it once, say it again, and then again, out of the depth. So, zog des einmal, zog des nochemol, intakem nochemol, fundertiefe nisch. And he, he writes it, I wish I could show it to you. Um, he writes it in this way that it's sort of stair-stepping down. So he's playing with the language on the page as well as the auditory language. Um, so it's, yeah, he's taking, he's kind of creating this long contraction, which is already a contraction the way that Hebrew is written, right? Mima Mekim. And he's translating that into Yiddish, 
And of course, this would not have been a prayer that was translated into Yiddish. People would have just recited it in Hebrew. But he translates it into the Fundertifenish and then turns this contraction into an utterance. And it, you know, it's it's almost as though this meaningful word becomes a nonsense word. It's a kind of Dadaist utterance in the in the way that, you know, lots of modernists across Europe, especially, like to play with language. Um, but he ends up vesting it with a new sort of meaning. The language itself, I think, for Levik in this poem, stands in for God. It's a it's a prayer that's uttered by someone who doesn't have faith left, but is perhaps looking for something. So it was written, this poem was written in 1937. Levick was in Denver. He was in a tuberculosis hospital. Uh, Hitler was ascending in Europe. The Spanish Civil War was hopeless, uh, or at least according to Levick at this point. Black lives in the United States not only did not matter, but they were threatened by lynchings due especially to the Scottsboro trial, which had been dragging on since 1931. Um, so this this kind of lack of significance, the lack of meaning that he could find in in the world and faith that he could find in the world is haunting the poet here. And and I find that he's he's trying to find a meaning for existence. He's looking to um, to his past education. He's looking to his childhood. He even uses this zogas nochemol, take nochemol, right? This you know, say it once and say it again. That's of course borrowing from this this song about learning the aleph base, learning you know, learning to um, to read and write Hebrew. Uh, so he's going back into Heder. He's going back into his early Jewish education, and um, and then trying to extract some piece of uh, of, of of Jewish sounds for his um, for his belief system. And that's, you know, that that argument about the education was actually put forth really beautifully. I want to give credit where credit's due. I read a dissertation um, by someone by the name of Efrat Bloom, who uh, was written about about Leivik at the University of Michigan. I'm curious, you're talking about the circumstances in which Leivik found himself, and I know you're not Leivik, but I'm wondering what it is about being in these dark times and seeing the world around him, not as he wanted it, that led him to think back to Jewish texts to his childhood? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that's a really, I think it's a really interesting question. It's a question that is, um, you know, at the heart of this, of this, this book that I've, that I've just written, um, Songs in Dark Times, right? It was at the 1930s were incredibly dark times. And I, there are those among us who identify with those times again now, uh, you know, a century later, almost a century later. Um, I think what was happening in the 1930s in particular was that uh, it had been a decade or over a decade when a lot of Jews were not only becoming more secular and more modern, but were, um, were doing their best to escape their backgrounds by looking at other people's and other, and, and other people's experiences. Um, and what I've found, and, and this is the, the particular group of poets, of far left-leaning poets that I study, is that, um, you know, poets who came of age around the time of the Russian Revolution, um, Jews that came of age around the, the time of the Russian Revolution, not only the poets, but I'm looking specifically at the poets, uh, were, they were tired of thinking about just Jewish culture. They wanted to think about other cultures. They wanted to think about an international. They wanted to think about a friendship of nations. And so many of the writers, including Levick that I write about were much more interested in talking about other groups. And then suddenly you have the ascent of Nazism. Uh, you have this extreme polarization between left and right that's taking place even in the United States. And many Jews, um, started to turn inward 
And you see this already happening in the in the late 1930s. This is even before the Hitler-Stalin Pact. This is before um, before World War II had broken out. Uh, but it was a time when many uh, when many started to reflect on their own experiences, and and to to want to protect that part of themselves. And Leivik was really going. He was a poet that was going back and forth between feeling strongly that he was a Jew and feeling strongly that that was not the most important part of himself. That actually he was, you know, he was a human being in the world and he wanted to connect to other people who, um, you know, wanted change. Right, other workers. He was also a, you know, a wallpaper hanger. That was another part of his identity. He was very much a, a, a worker, a, um, a lower class worker living in um, in New York and and often starving. He was was struggling because he couldn't get a party card because of his difficult relationship with the with the party he had trouble getting a I don't know if he actually wanted a communist party card but he had difficulty getting a a, a union membership um and so he you know he he had this worker's identity and um and yet he he was starting to look at his Jewish identity to try to find meaning as well and he wasn't the only one you have people like Gladstein you have people like Moshe Nadir a number of writers who had been focused on rejecting that provincial background that they'd grown up with, we're starting to turn back. You know, one thing that seems kind of contemporary to me, just in my own work, and really, I guess my whole career, the, the poem switches at first, um, the, me, whoever he's talking mm. to, you know, it's God or it's, it's the whole Jewish tradition, but why are you chasing me? Why mm. are you racing after me? It's almost like there's something demonic about like, you're, you're trying to get me. Yeah. And, um, and then there's a shift mm -hmm. and I am calling to you. I am praying to you. I am stretching my hands to you. <laughs> so it goes from me and Mama Kim, whoever that is, is chasing after him, racing after him. And then suddenly the poet has stretched his hands towards whatever that thing is from the depths, yeah. me and Mama Kim. And, and then it gets almost sensual. Like I want to touch mm. you. I want to be near you. I want to, yeah. I want to, I raise my, I raise myself up to you almost like a couple. Yeah, right. So like he, he can't make up his mind, you know, am I running away from this or am I running? Oh it? yeah, absolutely. It's a love hate relationship. It's this really, and it's, and it's not even, he's not even talking to God. He's talking to me, mommy, Akim. He's talking to this, to these words right. from the depths. Yeah. That's what he's, he's actually wanting to reach or, or unreach. It may be worth um, just taking a quick look at, and I can share with you a translation of the, um, of the Psalm that this is based on. Um, because I find, I find this poem to be a really meaningful way. in. this is a Psalm that I, um, I, I really kind of love, but I have, I struggle with parts of it. So this is the, the Mima Mekim Psalm, the De Profundis Psalm. It's, a, it's one of the songs of ascent, right? It's, a, it's a, one of the, the Shiramailas or, or songs of the step. Um, and, um, you know, it, it, it is supposed to have this especially exalted meaning. Um, they may have been sung at one point in history by pilgrims who were on their way to Jerusalem, um, possibly by Levites as they approached the temple. Uh, they tend to be very short and they tend to be interpreted as poems that bring the speaker closer to God. Um, so it's a song of a sense, but it also comes from the very lowest, the deepest place. And there's this movement from the lowest to the highest that I think Levick is trying to get at here. But I wanted to read you a translation. And this is one that is, um, this is my adaptation from the Bible scholar and translator, Robert Alter uh, at Berkeley. Um, so I'll read you kind of my, my version of this. A song of ascents. From the depths or from the deep, I called you, Lord. Master, hear my voice. May your ears listen for the voice of my plea. 
Were you, O oh God, to watch for wrongs, master, who would last or who could endure? My, uh, for forgiveness is yours so that you may be feared. I hoped for the Lord, my being hoped, and for God's word I waited. My being has kept watch for the master more than the watchmen of dawn watch for the dawn. Wait, O Israel, for God, for with God is either steadfast kindness or goodwill, and great redemption is with God, and God will redeem Israel from all its wrongs. So I, I um, you know, there's a few different pieces to this poem, to this psalm that I find, you know, kind of come out in the in the Levic piece and then others that are abandoned. It's this this deep, deep depths, first of all. And Robert Alter has talked about how from the deep has sometimes been interpreted as as from the ocean, which I really like as a San Diegan mm. and, and ocean swimmer. Um, <laughs> but um, but there's this this desire to be heard. And then there's this wonderful metaphor that's sort of belabored to the the watchmen, right? These these um, these watchers of dawn, dawn watchers, or or watchmen of the dawn. So I've, I've waited for you even more than these watchmen have waited for the dawn. Um, and uh, you know, and then it goes back to this this desire to be with God. Um, and then there's an affirmation of God as a redeemer. Um, so it's you know it's it's. Um, uh, you know, this, this poem about somebody who's sort of drowning um, or, or told from someone who's drowning. Um, and as someone who loves the ocean, I, I you know, I, I feel this, right? The deep is dangerous. The deep is, uh, is a dangerous place, but it's also one that's attractive. Um, and it's, it's nice to drown or not to drown. It's not nice to drown. Why did I say that? It's nice to go down. It's nice to dive down into the deep of the ocean. Yeah. And I, and maybe part of what's nice about it is that it's a little bit dangerous. There's this feeling of comfort in moving away from everything that you know. Um, and there may be a feeling of comfort in moving away from one's tradition. Um, bizarrely, right? Is comfort the right word? I'm not sure. But there's a feeling of something, of, of adventure, of peace, of, of sanity, of getting away from things. Um, and, uh, you know, again, danger, um, but it's really different from the air. <laughs> and, um, and so you have this, this, this psalm that, that at least makes me think about this, this, this need, this actual kind of visceral need to return to that air after having, having gone down to an airless space. Um, and, uh, you know, I, uh, I, I feel that Levick is perhaps playing with that very thing, right? He's, he's longing for that thing. It's not, he's not going to call it God, but he's longing for those words that he once knew. And those words are actually, right? It's the coming up. Yeah. So it's, it's, so God is, is either the coming up from the bottom or perhaps God. And I'm not, I'm saying God just because that's where the replacement is in his poem. He doesn't ever say that explicitly. Um, or perhaps it's simply ascent. It's the process of moving. It's the process of moving towards something that will give breath again. Yeah. Um, I also really enjoy thinking about the perplexing line for forgiveness is yours so that you may be feared. Right. <laughs> this, yeah. you know, I, odd relationship that's being reaffirmed. Um, you know, it's, it's both terrifying and necessary as, as Kierkegaard has put it right. Anxiety is freedom's possibility. Um, there's fear that is, that is always bound up in hope because it's, it's part of the, you know, part of, part of the process of moving towards a, a leap of faith is, is fear is anxiety. 
Um, and I think that's that's also in, embedded in this. Leivik was many years removed from his Heder education, but he was someone who was incredibly well-versed in poetry and was thinking about Jewish text. He certainly had at his fingertips the ability to, to get back into Jewish text, at least for his purposes as a poet, if he wanted to. It's so interesting. I'm suddenly seeing this given everything you've just said as this real longing, poem of longing almost, a longing for some kind of ret return, either spiritually or whatever that meant to Levick, to yeah. his roots amidst the like upheaval he is seeing in his life and in the world. And I just, this isn't so much a question as a comment, I suppose, but I, I see that happening around us right now too, with all of the chaos, there's some kind of primal longing for our roots or for religion or for something mm -hmm. spiritual. I know I certainly have felt that. Mm -hmm. And I, I, maybe I'm reading too much into it given the current moment we're in. Mm -hmm. But I find that so curious coming from someone who has tried so hard to distance himself yeah. and who has been so vocal in the kind of social justice. I just think there's something to that connection that's really interesting. Yeah, and I, and I think it's important that Levick stops short of religion. Right. He's not... He's not a Balchuva. He doesn't go back to God. He never goes back to prayer or to worship, but he does. He does use prayer as a way of of um, getting back to a cultural um, to a cultural commitment. I think it's a commitment to Yiddish for him, and I think it's a belief in um, in uh, some sort in knowing some sort of tradition and having some sort of you know words that he can you know that that, that he can remember words that he can pass on to another generation um, and you have to remember that by the late 1930s even before the war yiddish poets were um many of them were beginning to fear that there wouldn't be another generation to read them so there was this idea that they were perhaps writing into a void um, yeah, so it, it, it's a fear of a loss of language as well, and and language was starting to be worshipped. Yeah, you, you know the the story that it reminds me of, and and I I may have this wrong because uh, um, I actually I, I pretend to know the Bible by heart, but I actually don't. But um, <laughs> I, I think that um, <clears throat> I think Jonah yeah. says um, I think Jonah starts his his prayer to God when he's in the belly of the big fish, not a whale, but a big fish. And I think he starts with me, Mama Kim. You know, I, I called you from the wow. depths because he's literally in the ocean. Okay. He's in the middle of the ocean. He's in the middle of a whale. Mm -hmm. And the whole Jonah story um, inc includes the verb to go mm -hmm. down several times. He goes down. He goes down to Nineveh. He goes down to the hole of the mm -hmm. boat. You know, the, the inside of the boat. Then he's actually in the in the middle of the ocean. He's in, he's down in the belly of the yes. of the whale, uh, the big fish. And um, and then he writes his poem. So then he calls out to God. So he's gone down as far as he could possibly go. And he's stuck, you know, with nothing in, in the fearful depths. And, and the way you talk about that is maybe also a little bit of a liberation. <laughs> maybe it is a bit of a liberation. I mean, he, because there's no, he's got nothing left. Right. I mean, he's he's left everything behind. He's, he's in the mm -hmm. bottom of the he's in the he's, it's like a journey to the center of the earth. Mm -hmm. That's where he is. And all he can do yeah. is call out. And uh, reminds me that um, Anne Lamott, one of my favorite writers mm -hmm. on religion, you know, she talks about sometimes there's a moment where um, you just look up at God and say, look, I've done everything. <laughs> I've, there's, I've got nothing left. So now, so now it's up to you. Yeah. And, you know, I picture, you know, Labick in a, you know, in a sanatorium, you know, with the shadow of the mm -hmm. Holocaust sort of chasing yeah. him. And uh, I've got nothing left except, you know, me and my Makim. <laughs> 
you know, kind of what I started with, just this, this tenuous connection to yeah. something deep. And that's yeah, that's started. nice. That's really, that's really, and it, it's what's interesting to me about this psalm. And I know that this is a, this is a, a, you know, a motif in biblical writing in general, right? But fear is positive, right? Fear is, fear is yeah. awe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's this respect that humans have to place in whatever's beyond our control. Um, you know, the respect that Jews have for millennia placed in the all powerful. And so here you have this kind of, you know, this from the depths that makes clear that this kind of awe is intimately bound up in the humility required to ask for forgiveness. Um, and I think that that's part, it's, it's that process, it's that ritual p- process that Levick is going through, even though he's not going to name God. That's not going, he's not there. He's not going right. to, he's, yeah. he's, he's, he's beyond that, but he's still looking to language. Um, and I think it's, you know, I think it's also a psalm and in some ways a poem about the difficult task of trusting that repair is possible. Yeah. That the world might get better somehow, that the individual might get better somehow, right? Um, that bodies will heal themselves, that, you know, uh, forests will be reforested, air will go clean again. Mm. Um, and, you know, this was a, even though we, of course, like looking back at it a century later almost, say, oh my God, but it got so much worse. At the time, it was already so bad. And there was already yeah. this need for belief that it would somehow, it would somehow get better. Yeah. I'm curious. Um, this is such a rich text. I'm curious why you chose it and why it's significant to you. What meaning does it hold for you personally? Yeah. You know, I, um, in addition to being a, a scholar of literature, I'm also a translator and I really love the, um, I love the, the, the text as a translation of the Psalm. I, I'm very, I, I like the, um, I like the use of poetry as an interpretive tool um, and I also feel that language can fill that role of a, um, of, of a belief system, right? That there's, yeah. because there is tradition, uh, vested in language, um, because there is, you can look back at, at, at generations of people who have spoken a language, um, because words are, words are the deepest, most traditional thing, you know, taboos and so forth that we have, um, as humans, I think that thinking of faith as uh, you know, as 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 the the way that we think about words is um, is actually a, a, a quite spiritual process, yeah. and it also allows us. I mean, it allows me as a you know scholar of modern literature <laughs> to think about modern poetry as a vehicle for um, you know allowing humans to get in touch with their humanness, um, which is really perhaps one of the roles of faith as well, right? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, how do we get in touch with what makes us us? How do we get in touch with the, you know, the, um, the, all of the, you know, (laughs) the the problems and and beautiful aspects of the, of the human being? Um, Well, if we go back and look at, um, and and look at what words have done in the past um, for, for cultures, I I don't know if I'm getting a bit too metaphysical about language, but I, um, I love that. um, Yeah. I, I mean, I suppose you, you must also believe the obverse too, right? That that uh, that if, if language can be a healing force, it can also be a really destructive yeah. force. And, and I guess and I guess we see both. Yeah. Nowadays. Yeah. I mean, the bottom line is that language is incredibly powerful, and that it you know, it it deserves to be prayed to in some ways, right? 
I don't yeah. know what that means, honestly. I mean, I say that, and um, you know, when when my my children ask me what um, you know what prayer is and what religion is, the answer that I give them is, well, it's the um, it's a system that humans have created in order to say thank you for the world. Um, so I guess even in in that you know quite secular description of prayer for my kids is this um, this concept that it's the saying, it's the uttering, right? It's it's saying thank you for these things that we have because we don't we don't know who to thank. So we have to develop a, a, a story that helps us to put that into place. Um, and I think um, I think that's what these poets are doing when they're returning to prayers as a way of making sense of their own reality. Um, you know, especially at a moment when they, they feared for those words, they didn't want those words to, to go missing. It's, I mean, you're, you're talking to two writers. So that, that's something that really resonates to me. Language yeah. is spiritual practice and as connection to something larger. It also strikes me though, as incredibly Jewish that there is some mm. kind of continuity among texts that a text an original psalm from years, you know, hundreds of years before uh, Levick wrote this poem could be generative for Levick. And then I know you shared another poem that was generative mm -hmm. from this poem. And I just mm -hmm. think that that strikes me as not only seeing language as something sacred, but that's something very Jewish that we see language as sacred and generative as well. So... Yeah, right. I mean, you you know, you replace uh, you can replace physical animal sacrifices with words, right? Um, right. You know, words are and magical. then we write commentary yeah, yeah. on our sacred texts, and that mm -hmm. commentary itself, the Talmud, yeah. is sacred, right? So mm -hmm. I find that yeah, and for Levi, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, it just strikes me that he wasn't trying to do something very Jewish, but it's so Jewish, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but it was it it really gets to the heart. I, I think that the other thing that this poem does is it gets to the heart of um the the this painful moment. <laughs> this is an incredibly painful time, right? There was nobody more challenged to find meaning in traditional prayer than a secular American Yiddish poet in the 1930s. Right? They were just these poets were were trying to create beauty in an incredibly ugly time. Um, they were trying to repair a, a deeply fragmented world. Um, they were these utopians, many of them, that had wanted a revolution. They'd wanted to create a kind of paradise on earth. Um, and they had faith that it would get better, but now they were not, they couldn't agree on how to do it. And they were fighting bitterly with one another over it. Um, so you see, you know, if you go through, as I have for this book project, um, newspapers from say 1937, the cover pages are, they're all carrying news of like the Sino-Japanese War, the Spanish Civil War, the Scottsboro Trial in the American South, the rise of Hitler, uh, you know, was the solution to be found in some kind of ethnically defined community or was it to be found by distance? distancing oneself from these communities. And the, the Jewish poets at the time couldn't agree on how to do it. You know, many of them said, well, the, the way that we can find truth is to let go of all forms of nationalism. And that was something that, that Levit kind of got and in part agreed with. But then others were saying, but we also need to go back and, and get in touch with our own sort of family origins and what gave meaning to our grandparents. Levit kind of agreed with that too. And he couldn't, he, he couldn't figure out where he was on that spectrum. Um, but, um, but, you know, nobody was doing a very good job of inspiring peace. It was really, you know, no one had gotten it. <laughs> um, it was this moment when the planet was sinking into a, an abyss and he was, you know, Levick was, 
going back through his own mind, through his past, through his survival of his Zara's prison camp and, um, you know, and digging very deeply into his, into his childhood to this sort of Mima Mekim prayer. And he goes back and forth in the poem. He titles the poem Mima Mekim, but of course he uses the translation within the poem as well, Funzer Tifanish. Um, so it's there in both the Hebrew and Yiddish. There's something obviously, I mean, you've, you've, I'm sure you know this and you've commented on it, but um, there is an irony in Yiddish writers trying to escape mm -hmm. their Jewish identity, but <laughs> writing in Yiddish. You know, once, once they pick Yiddish as their medium, as their language, then there's no escaping a Jewish identity. So it's somehow it's, it's, it's <laughs> stuck with them. And I, and I guess maybe that's a, yeah. that's an irony he was fighting against yeah. and giving in. You know, that's what the, the, the end, the end of the poem, I feel like mm -hmm. that's what happened is he, he gives in. Yeah. The, the, the monster is chasing him. The monster is Mima Maki. Maybe it's God. Maybe it's his Jewish identity. And then he, then he's, he turns mm -hmm. and accepts the chase and embraces it. So mm -hmm. by the end, he's given in. Mm -hmm. And then he's playing with the word. I, yeah. He keeps on saying it. And um, because if you're a Yiddish writer, in the end, you have, mm -hmm. I think, you know, if, if, if you're going to be true to the language itself, mm -hmm. you have to give in. Otherwise, learn another language. It's not, not so easy to do, <laughs> right? But there, there are writers that have abandoned their language. I mean, these writers never abandoned their language. That's right. They and he, you know, not it. only did he not, you know, abandon his language, but but Leivik was someone where he had a very firm line where many of his fellow Yiddish writers at the time were saying, but, you know, I'm not, it's not about being one of the Jewish people anymore. It's about being, you know, one of, you know, a, a, a human of the world. That was a line that Leivik was never fully able to cross. He did feel attached uh, in some way to this idea of Jewishness. And he, in fact, later in life, he had a, um, you know, he, he lived for another couple of decades after this. Um, he became ill. He had another, I'm not actually sure exactly what the condition was, but he came, became basically paralyzed by the end of his life. But people would make these pilgrimages to see him. He was sort of a Revy figure at the end of his life. And, and he was already taking this role on in the 1930s. He was a very famous poet. He, was a, he had all of his revolutionary credentials in place. He had all of his poetic credentials in place. Um, he, was, he was looked up to by many people, but he was also hated by many people because of his tendency to change his mind politically. Um, he was never able to sort of fully commit. There was a moment when he thought about moving to the nascent Soviet Union in the 1920s and decided not to do that and then turned against the party line. So, you know, his life had many twists and turns, uh, but he was never fully able, as some of his colleagues did, even writing in Yiddish, to abandon this idea that he, he did somehow feel attached to a Jewish community. Yeah, and this is kind of where I, I had shared with you guys, I don't know if you want to go here, but um, I'd shared with you another poem by Moshe Nadir, which I believe was in response to Heilevik, um, which was also called Mima Mekim, <laughs> and which was, of course, also based on the same Psalm 130. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, a poem, also a poem of, you know, a Shremailus, right? It's a poem of, of ascent. It's a song of ascent. Um, but... Nadir and Heilevik had fought bitterly for the last hmm. 10 years. They had, um, you know, they had, uh, especially Nadir had kind of raked uh, Leivik's name over the coals when Leivik had chosen uh, during the uprisings in Palestine in 1929, Leivik had chosen to side with the, um, the Jews living in Palestine rather than with the 
Arab uprisings. Um, Nadir saw him as a, you know, as a traitor, as a betrayer. He wrote poems against him. Um, he wrote all sorts of, you know, exclamatory things about Levick and, and his colleagues who had left the, the communist press over this event. Um, and they kind of continued to, uh, uh, to, to be on two sides of this American Jewish left throughout the 1930s. Um, and then at the end of his own life, Moisha Nadir had this moment when he just changed his mind about everything. <laughs> he uh, and it really, it really happened with the Hitler-Stalin pact, and this happened for many poets at the time, where he said, "Oh my God, I was wrong. I yeah. I shouldn't have sided with the Soviet Union about these things." And you can, you know, you can you can argue that you know maybe he was overreacting in that sense too, in some ways, but he. Um, you know, he'd written these these terrible things about Levick and others a decade earlier. And then by 1940, 1941, um, the, you know, Hitler-Stalin pact had been signed. Uh, he was ready to leave the to leave the party. He started to write these letters of apology to all of um, to all of his former friends that he'd fought with. And Moshe Nadir wrote a wrote a letter of apology to to Levick. Um, but it was like kind of a barbed letter of apology. It was like, um, I should have, I'm such a fool. It's sort of over the top an apology. I should have known that not everyone would bow to the same gods. And, you know, it's sort of, it's like a, an apology, a backhanded apology. And Levick writes this sort of backhanded response to the apology writing, oh, I hold no grudge against you, you know, but it's very short. Um, so the two of them are still sort of at it, even after all of this should have blown over. Um, and, you know, perhaps in a last ditch attempt to kind of make amends with his fellow poets, uh, Nadia wrote this version of Mima Make Him. I don't know, do I have time to read that one or uh, is it enough to just sort of reference it? <laughs> Why don't you read it and then we'll talk sure. a little bit okay. about um, your So Nadia... You know what? I won't even read the whole thing. I'll just write, I'll just read one line for you since I know that we're running out of time. Uh, he um, he's sort of a, a exploring um, the possibility of even creating poetry in the darkest of times in this poem. Mm. So this is Nadia's poem: "Out of the hardened depths, echoless, exitless, I sing beauty's blue myth, like gilding through Venetian glass." And I'll read that line in in that stanza in Yiddish: "Von der Glieverdiker tief." Echolos, um, oisganglo, sorry. Um, ich sing der Schönheit's bloem nief, wie durchgegilt venetisch glos, right? So it's, it's echoless, echolos, oisganglos, exilless. So he's talking about this, there's a very specific abyss that is this place that he's gone to, which doesn't really have any way out. And yet the poets have to sing anyway, which is sort of what that psalm is also doing. It's like, yeah. I'm so far away from everybody else, like mm -hmm. Jonah, yeah. right, in the, in the fish. I'm so far away from everybody else, yeah. but here I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk anyway, even if it's just to myself or to something else, to, to language, who knows. Yeah. Do you, I mean, I'm sort of putting you on the spot. I mean, do, do you feel like, is there a contemporary resonance? I mean, are we in the depths right now? And is that is that lingering in your mind? Or, and are we looking for a way out, but kind of feeling like um, we might be stuck? And yeah, I, don't I mean, people detail. have been asking I mean, me like, this we, about we know this. I call this book "Songs of Songs in Dark Times," and um, and so you know, this is the question that I've been getting when I when I give talks about it: is are is this are we also in dark times? <laughs> like, are we there? Um, 
I mean, the 1930s got so much worse with the 19, early 1940s. And I think I, I do continue to conceive of myself as an optimist in part because I believe deeply that things can get worse. And, and in part because I, um, I believe that if they can get worse, we can also turn that around. We have the possibility of preventing it from getting worse. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm, I guess I'm, I'm cautious about saying that we've hit some sort of rock bottom with the world yet because we're still functioning, right? Those guys are still, I'm still going on my ocean swims and, um, you know, I, and the water is still relatively clean to do that. Um, and I, and I worry that my children will, you know, <laughs> will not be able to do that in the same way, uh, when they're adults, uh, you know, we're, we're at a very, we're out of, we're in a dark time though. I mean, we're, I mean, we may not be in a 1930s level dark time, although some people certainly are. I mean, someone's dark times might be someone else's just mild inconvenience. And, right. you know, I'm having to work from home and take care of my children at home, but, you know, I'm not in a detention center for, you know, migrants fleeing a regime that's trying to murder them and not getting in. Um, and so I think that for many, this is a, a, a deeply dark time. Um, and I, and I do think that these writers who were struggling with how to be good human beings in the 1930, in the 1930s helped to instruct us in part because they, um, they remind us that it's hard, <laughs> that there's not a clear answer, um, that it's not about choosing, you know, some sort of self-sacrificing, uh, you know, path that that leads away from everything that your background taught you or about choosing to retreat into your own background, but that, you know, um, that doesn't seem to work, that we as humans have to continue to navigate that, um, that difficult uh, tightrope. Hearing that optimism and that hope strikes me as very much just looking over the, the second poem as a little bit tonally in that way. I mean, I sing of love again. There's, there's, there's hope in that. There's optimism in that that's reflected even in these dark times. So that gives me a little bit of hope. Yeah, I mean, he was, then Nadia was, Nadia was, I would almost say Nadia was in a period of tshuva because mm -hmm. he was, um, you know, he wasn't going to shul, but he was starting, to, he was writing a lot about God and he was using the name God in his writings. And he was, he was apologizing to everyone. He was writing these letters to all of the friends that he had offended. Um, and, you know, I, I think he was expressing this faith and forgiveness and, you know, and this, this faith that somehow, art would survive even in the deepest times. Nadir was a really complicated person. They were both complicated people, but Nadir especially was sort of, not everyone forgave him. <laughs> like yeah. he was, he had, he had crossed too many lines for them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, another, actually interestingly, lots of people apologized to Levick after the Hitler-Stalin pact, some of them right after and some of them long after, because Levick had been sort of, you know, he, he had, had become a kind of scapegoat in the, the late 20s. Another of his colleagues, Alexander Pomerantz, had asked in the 1950s whether Levick wanted him to write an open apology. And Levick responded, I've forgiven you. I don't think it's necessary for you to make a public declaration unless it's necessary for yourself alone. And then he went on mm -hmm. to say, and by the way, and Pomerantz had also written him, you know, to ask for help getting a job. And, and he, he went on to say that he put in a good word for Pomerantz and, you know, uh, and, and then he writes into despair, you, you must not and should not fall. 
so you can see that you know Levick had Levick had moved on. You know he'd he'd gone through his own sort of spiritual reckoning or person whatever you want to call it personal reckoning, and he had managed to forgive all of these people, kind of recognizing the difficulty of the time and also probably recognizing that he hadn't been you know a saint himself. I know we're wrapping up our discussion of the text. I just wanted to say it strikes me as pretty remarkable that these are poets that are inside the fear of the loss of their language and we're talking about it in 2020 and talking about Yiddish literature. I know that's what you dedicate your life to, but it just strikes me as like the ultimate beautiful irony. Yeah, I mean, Yiddish has not disappeared. It's, um, Yiddish is, is surviving. It's not surviving in exactly the same way that these writers knew it. Uh, You know, it's, um, there are uh, plenty of Hasidic families that are raising children and speaking Yiddish with them, and it's their primary language. Um, and you even see, I mean, David Katz makes this point in his book, uh, Words on Fire. He, you know, he kind of guesses, and this was 20 years ago that the book came out, but um, or 15 years ago, um, he sort of sort of guesses that someday there will be another group of Hasidic renegades and there will be another form of modernism, whatever that form will take, um, which is, I mean, I don't, you know, who knows, like, will we ever have another modernism? And that would be kind of cool if we did. Um, but, um, you know, obviously we are seeing some interesting art that's produced in Yiddish by people who grew up speaking Yiddish in these um, very ins- um, insular contexts. Um, and then you also see the rise in Yiddish that's been going for a long time now. I mean, I got in at, at some point when I was beginning graduate school, um, right around the turn of the century, the turn of the millennium. Um, but it, this was an effort on the part of graduate students, you know, scholars to preserve Yiddish through translation and through study. And that's my own engagement with it. Um, I see it as a, as a language that's a, a beautiful literary language and one that needs to be translated and one that, that can give us meaning if we translate it. I was thinking, I mean, the, the people that were mourning Yiddish in the 30s and 40s, they, they were right and they were wrong. I mean, you know, they were, they, they were right in that it, it's, it's not what it used to be. It's, it's not the national language of the Jewish people. And there's not a secular body that, mm-hmm. that's currently communicating in Yiddish. And I guess they were wrong in, in that there's like, there's like you and the National Yiddish Book Center and Aaron Lansky. I mean, people work very hard to preserve it culturally. And I think have succeeded in, in carving out a mm-hmm. place in Jewish culture for Yiddish. And, uh, and maybe that goes forward. I mean, who would have thought there'd be a TV show, right? Not that long ago. That this is, uh, seems you're like half about? the show is in Yiddish. Um, Stiesel and Unorthodox. No, there's this, there's this oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That was interesting. That yeah. was an interesting show. Um, yeah, I, I really love Stiesel, but uh, Unorthodox was, was fascinating. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and part of it is nostalgia that it's this sort of, you know, who was unorthodox for, it wasn't necessarily for the same communities that it was, that it was describing, but um, yeah, absolutely. I think Yiddish, uh, Yiddish has become, has filled a need for a lot of people that other forms of um, Jewish tradition have fallen short of filling. And I think that is a need for some connection to the ethnic part of Jewishness, the cultural part of Jewishness that doesn't absolutely um, have to mean religion and that doesn't necessarily have to mean the state of Israel. And I think that, you know, as a, you know, diaspora history, uh, Jewish history and, and Jewishness 
um, has, you know, has, has much to offer people looking for, uh, I don't know, roots for lack of a better word, or looking for a, um, looking for a sense of, a sense of continuity. Um, and so I, I think Yiddish has, has become a kind of countercultural option for Jews in a really interesting way. Um, and that's not to say that it's always countercultural, right? Because you also have a very mainstream sort of, you know, well, the Yiddish that's spoken in Borough Park, that's not really countercultural exactly. Um, but Yiddish has provided a way for people to get into um, thinking about Jewishness without necessarily going through all the doors that are that are the most obvious. Well, uh, thank you very much. This has really been interesting. Uh, it it uh, took us on all sorts of different avenues that I, I didn't suspect, but um, yeah, thank really you appreciate so much it. So thank you, Amelia. Um, yeah, thank you. I also want to thank Alexander Gilbert, who is our producer. So thanks, Alex. And um, um, thank you, Amelia and Allie again. If people and, want to uh, learn more about you and read episode. your upcoming book, where can they find it? Oh, thank you. Yes, yeah, so it's called it's called Songs in Dark Times. It um, and the the subtitle is uh, Yiddish Poetry of Struggle from Scottsboro to Palestine. It's forthcoming with the university uh, with Harvard University Press. Um, you can find it in all the um, all the usual places. You can go to the Harvard University Press website and buy it directly, or you can buy it from your favorite independent bookstore, um, ideally in person <laughs> somehow. <laughs> um, but yeah. Great. Well, we look forward to reading it. Thank you.